This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, wildfires are raging in both the northern and southern parts of California right now. Most of the city of Paradise, California, in the northern part of the state was destroyed by the so-called campfire. At least 29 people have died and more than 200 people are missing from that one. The Woolsey Fire in Southern California has destroyed mansions in Malibu as well as suburban areas, killing at least two. The wildfires have led to red flag warnings being posted from the Oregon line all the way down to San Diego, meaning conditions are right for further fires. California, of course, has been dealing with deadly and destructive wildfires for many years now, in part due to the drought that the state has been dealing with for some time. Howard Kunruther is professor of decision sciences and policy, as well as co-director of the Risk Management and Decision Processes Center here at the Wharton School. He joins us on the phone, as does Keith Gillis, who is a professor and dean emeritus of the College of Natural Resources at the University of California at Berkeley. Howard, Keith, thank you for your time today, both of you. So, Keith, let's start with you. And if you can, I guess, give us a little bit of a status report uh, on these two fires and, and what we are looking at in terms of of the damage and the and the uh, the impact on a lot of these communities. Hmm. Well, the status is they're still both very active incidents. And uh, while the fire service is making some headway on control on both fires, especially the uh, uh, the campfire, um, they're a long way from being under control. Howard, what has been your reaction to everything that we have seen here in the last uh, in the last few days? Well, I think that uh, this raises so many issues in terms of how we can reduce the consequences of these wildfires. It's just another example uh, that obviously California is struggling with, as um, Keith undoubtedly knows better than I do. Um, and we need to figure out ways that we can really take steps, we meaning the state of California, uh, insurers and utilities and others who are all involved, and obviously the residents of the area, um, to reduce these losses in the future. And this just highlights that point. Well, Keith, you probably know that as much as anybody being out there in California. What basically is the status of that type of relationship with all the different entities out there in California? I think it's a very active one. Um, you know, we're we're doing the obvious things you might think in a fire-prone area. Cal Fire is making big investments in increasing its air fleet, for instance. They're picking up a lot of military C-130 aircraft to use as uh, uh, suppression drops, and they're also upgrading their old helicopter fleet. But there's a lot of the stuff that's before suppression that we're actively pushing. Uh, the Firewise USA program, we're the third largest number of communities engaged in that program out of the uh, National Fire Protection Association in the country. Uh, Colorado's number one for the same reasons that we care about this in California. Right. Um, we're rapidly uh, investing in um, both personnel and procedures to certify the safety elements for all the cities and counties. Um, we have uh, both staff at the State Board of Forestry and Fire Protection, which I chair, uh, and a large number of pre-fire engineers working at CAL FIRE um, that are going through county by county, city by city, and looking at their compliance with the public regulatory code on all these things uh, in terms of their road networks, 
signage, uh, access to water. Um, you know, we know the things that you have to work on, and, and we're working on that. Uh, a lot of investment in the science of zoning hazards uh, right, across right. the state and using those to come back and say um, how, how nuanced should the local protection measures be. And we're, we're doing about a quarter of a million defensible inspections across the state now with money that's come out of the state so that we can actually look at all the properties in the state responsibility area on something like the cycle that a homeowner would need to be maintaining the vegetation around their home uh, in order to increase the fire resilience of the property. You so mentioned we're, we're working on it. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the, the inspections, which I find is a, is an interesting piece to us. If you can, for everybody listening around the country, explain what that process is and how frequently it is actually going on right now out in California to look at these properties and, and look exactly what is either contributing or not contributing to a potential uh, wildfire. Right. I think at this point, we have the personnel and the funding to where we're looking at homes in these areas that are fire prone on a three to five year cycle. Um, and, you know, you go out there, you're looking at the vegetation management, uh, uh, 100 uh, feet of the property, um, and you're with a variety of things that you want to look at, you know, how much fuel is on the ground, uh, are you managing the trees so that you've got a little separation between the canopies, is there any overhang on the roofs, but also looking at what can you do to harden the structure. There's some things like uh, wood roofs, which are a real risk factor, uh, you know, where in many of these areas, if you're going to replace a roof at the end of its life, it's not going to necessarily be with what was there before. And then other things like uh, closing, boxing in the eaves, uh, moving firewood a- away from the home. There's, there's a lot of things you can do to both manage the fuel around the home, but also harden the home so that it can sort of passively resist uh, ignitions. And that's really important in these wind-driven fires because they're throwing embers, which can ignite a roof uh, a half a mile or a mile in advance of the fire, the flaming front of the fire, when you've got a 50, 60 mile an hour wind, it can really toss those, those firebrands. So Howard, it sounds like there's an element of innovation here, uh, that that's included in this as well, because of the fact that we are also trying to adapt the homes that are in these areas to better be able to deal with uh, the the level of fire that we're now seeing, which is obviously more frequent. The majority of the bigger storms have occurred in the last, uh, or I should say wildfires, have occurred in the last decade or so. Well, no, there's no question. I think that what Keith is indicating is a way to go in the sense of recognizing that uh, these homes uh, have to be better designed. The roofs certainly can be better. They could be fireproof uh, where they may not be today. Uh, there are, there's vegetation that could be possibly dealt with uh, in a way to, to reduce the likelihood of the spread of fire. But here's the real challenge. Uh, the challenge, I think, is how do you get homeowners to do this? Um, and one of the reasons that it's the challenge is that a homeowner could say, look, I may do all of these things, but then there's going to be a fire from my neighbor that is going to spread to my house, and I'm still going to be in, a, in, in trouble afterwards. So it isn't just myself that's affected, but it's all these others around them. The interdependency and interconnectedness of wildfires makes it really hard. And so I think we, are, we have to ask the question, um, is it important to have a better building code in these areas, regulations? Uh, the inspections are going to 
going to be critical as a part of that to make sure that homeowners have done that. You also could have the state uh, or some source giving um, loans low-interest loans or possibly supporting even grants to help the homeowners do that. But at the end of the day, it isn't just the homeowners. It is uh, other uh, other parts of, you know, the, in fact, the, the notion of uh, development in areas so there's less forest and more vegetation, and how do you clean that up? So it's a challenge, I think, that has to be looked at not only, uh, as I said, from, how, from the residents, but also the utilities will have to play a role here, and the insurers will play a role uh, in terms of cleaning things up and making things uh, more less likely to spread from one area to another. Howard Cunruther joining us uh, on the phone. He is with the Wharton School. Keith Gillis also with us from the University of California at Berkeley. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. So, Howard, you mentioned the insurance industry, and you know I find it interesting that this is something that obviously is, is tacking on hundreds of millions of dollars of cost onto the insurance industry uh, every year at this point. And they are, in what you have told me in the past, they are the ones that end up paying out the cost of this because of the fact that these are like fires, like any fire a homeowner would have to deal with, whether it would be something that occurred in the oven that, you know, that spurred a fire of some kind. Well, it, it is certainly true, as you said, um, Dan, that uh, homeowners' policies, if you have a, uh, an insurance policy, as most homeowners do if they have a mortgage, uh, will cover a fire from any source, and wildfires are part of that. Uh, here's the, the challenge, I think, not only for the insurance industry, but for the utilities as well. The insurers will have to pay for the losses to the houses that they've insured, not necessarily uh, to any other house, but certainly to their to their residents. But they may also then find themselves in a position where they feel maybe they shouldn't be paying that, and they have the opportunity to use a technical term to subrogate, to say, we're going to ask the utilities to pay for this, because they may be the cause of the fire in the first place. And so there's a very interesting challenge here between insurers and utilities in terms of who should be paying at the end of the day. California has a a law, and Keith can comment on this as well, on inverse condemnation that says if, if, if you can show that the utilities have caused the fire, uh, uh, then, uh, then they may be the ones who have to be responsible for paying at the end of the day. And that is an interesting issue. And I'll just raise one last point on that. Um, the utilities may still have to pay, even if they followed all the regulations and standards. But let's say a tree is blown down and destroys a power line. Uh, that has been meeting all these standards, the utilities may still be responsible in California because of this law. So there there are some interesting issues. Uh, Wharton Risk Center is spending some time looking at them, but I'll just put them on the table for uh, Keith to possibly comment, or you may want to pursue this in some other direction. And, and Keith, uh, I I mean, if memory serves me, last year, one of the fires that occurred out in California, there was a question of whether or not that was the responsibility of a utility, because uh, from what I understand, did it not start with a power line, correct? Uh, Actually, utilities have been the cause of a number of large fires, and a fair number of the ones we had in our firestorm last year trace back to utilities. I think the, uh, the interesting thing about our inverse condemnation, which is an unusual procedure, um, 
as Howard says, even if you're in compliance with the directives on vegetation clearance that come out from the California Public Utilities Commission or from the Board of Forestry and Fire Protection, um, if uh, a fire results from not a failure on your part to follow regulations in mm -hmm. terms of safety, but simply your equipment is involved, a uh, 90-mile-an-hour uh, wind takes a huge branch, throws it into a power line, and starts a fire. You had the right clearance, you've been doing your job, but the utility was still the source of the ignition, right. um, that you are liable. And that creates something which I, I'm sure will be adjudicated over years uh, in terms of what the liability to the utilities will be. Our legislature took this issue up but didn't reach really a final uh, decision as to whether or not the existing law should be modified significantly or not. Um, it's, it's a big issue, and I, I'm not sure that ratepayers fully understand under a regulated utility what the implications of that liability could be for them. We're joined here on the phone by Keith Gillis of the University of California at Berkeley, along with Howard Conruther of the Wharton School. Your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. How much, Howard, do the citizens themselves have to be aware of what is going on right now and be able to potentially factor into the to the to the uh, to fixing some of these problems out there well i think this is of course a really challenging question uh because i think most times uh, people don't want to think about something like a wildfire i think today they're thinking a lot more about it because of just exactly what's happening in california i think the other part of it is uh something that um uh, keith has mentioned in his earlier comments what can they do um to reduce that risk uh and will they do it and so there's a real challenge i think first of all in making them aware but I think that really it's also a community uh, a problem. I think that to some extent building codes are local um, and communities can try to take some steps. Uh, if the community plays a role by letting all the homeowners know how, the, how, integrate, you know, how interconnected all of this is and what each of them can do and possibly can help them along and possibly uh, through some regulations and standards can require them to do it. It's a really challenging issue when people have to shell out money uh, to try to make their house safer and are asking themselves, is that money really doing the trick? Because they know that it could, the fire could spread for elsewhere. And so uh, I, I think that it does require the state to play a more creative role, local communities to play a role, and obviously bring the citizens and the homeowners into the picture. Um, so that's, uh, but I don't think it's easy. And I think, uh, and Keith, you probably know this better certainly than I do in living in California to get people to be aware and then to get them to do the things we'd like them to do and to get the state to do what it has to do. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting problem where there's homeowner action. Uh, unlike a lot of other natural hazards, we've been hitting so many fires in California that uh, people's reaction now to wildfire is a risk is a little different than someone that might live in a floodplain or might live in an area that's a, a fault line where earthquakes, you know, may happen 
that are significant on a 50 to 100 year cycle. Um, your experience as an individual with a natural hazard really conditions your thought process uh, in the actions that you're willing to take to deal with it. And at times, uh, the right way to get the decision-making uh, along the lines that's useful for us as a society as a whole, um, there's a high-level sort of policy that would have to be put in and saying, well, exactly uh, how much of a feedback loop are we going to look for between uh, insurers uh, with respect to this risk and the actions that might be taken by communities or by individuals, which are slightly different. Communities can do some things, individuals can do some things, which would mitigate the risk. And how do we get some incentives built in? Um, it's not currently the case that there's a strong feedback loop between mitigation actions and the insured risk. There's also some nuances that, uh, you know, are being worked out. Uh, we saw this in the Thomas fires last year. What about a mudslide that happens yeah. later because yep. you've scorch the soil, uh, put it into a hydrophobic condition, and then you get a really intense rainfall event just right after the fire when the soil is absolutely unable to allow the water to percolate in, and then you get the classic mud flow. Um, is that covered under your homeowner's insurance, uh, which would normally exclude things like a landslide? And there's been some findings by the Department of Insurance out here that if, yeah, you know, if, if the fire was the proximate cause, that's going to have to be covered. And so we're sort of stumbling our way through uh, establishing what the social policies are going to be to both deal with the risk, but get people to deal with the risk as individuals, not expect the state yeah. to and, handle the whole affair. And, Dan, if I could make one just quick point here, and, and then we'll get back to, uh, to you. Um, I, I do think that um, one of the key points that you raised, uh, Keith, in, in your comments about uh, homeowners is that if you haven't experienced an event, um, you're going to be you're going to have a harder time sort of taking steps to prepare for it and invest in it. And wildfires may be a bit different because so much of California is now hurt hit by that, and so there is experience vicariously with what other people have done. We'll have to find that out. But then the other issue is knowing what to do and figuring out whether it's worth your doing it. And those things are also on the table. So I think the challenge of getting anyone to prepare beforehand is something that is a real, real uh, issue here. And, and, and as you pointed out, with other natural disasters, it's even worse because you haven't experienced the earthquake uh, since uh, 1994 in California. And, uh, and floods and hurricanes have a similar problem, although they be a lot more frequent now than they were in the past. Hey, Keith, you, you mentioned before the zoning part of this, and I, and I wanted to touch on that anyway, is that mm -hmm. the, the demographic of where people are living in some areas of California California has changed a good bit in the last decade, decade and a half, in that you have more people that may be traditionally in the suburbs looking to be a little bit even farther out, to have that that kind of that forest location, that house in, in that style, um, maybe more so than you did uh, a, a couple of decades ago, correct? And that would obviously play into part of the part of what we're talking about with people recognizing what's going on here. Absolutely. And the town of Paradise 
which is what you've been seeing the most images of with respect to the campfire, is a perfect example of that. That community's grown dramatically, uh, both as a result of commuters looking for more affordable housing. Uh, so we're working, living farther and farther from some of the urban centers where we work. Uh, but it's also grown tremendously because of retirees. And in fact, retirees moving into these areas is one of the, the big economic drivers of the local economy. You know, you bring uh, wealth and pension assets that were accumulated working in urban areas and you move up here. But we've had a tremendous movement into uh, areas uh, – of the, you know, creating more and more of this wildland urban interface. Um, and that growth is actually projected to continue. And people move up there, you know, both for economic reasons, but also quality of life. How much conversation is going on right now, Keith, when you talk about all of these different kind of pieces to the puzzle to really start to to dig deeper into it? And I want to throw on top of that, a lot of people have conversation about the issue of the climate and the impact that the change in the climate over the last decade or two has had in maybe developing some of these uh, these problems where forest fires and wildfires are concerned. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt that the scientific consensus on climate change is moving uh, people to take action. And you hear that come up repeatedly. Uh, Governor Brown set up a forest, task, forest management task force uh, in the last uh, months of his administration that's very actively trying to work on these issues, and I expect that will continue into the new administration. Um, so... People are thinking, how do we deal with this, not just as an issue of fire, but, but these changes in the drivers of fire, like climate change? Uh, the zoning, uh, there's a great deal going on there in terms of, well, if uh, particular areas have different kinds of vegetation, you know, one size doesn't fit all, a forest community isn't the same as a, a coastal shrub community. Yeah. So if you're down there by where the Thomas fire was and you're in an area that had naturally long fire return intervals, uh, some kind of vegetation management might look different than up in the Sierra where the natural fire return interval was, say, 7 to 12 years. Um, and uh, the really big question for me is whether or not we're going to map out some of the fire corridors which are a function of topography and Santa Ana winds. So there are some areas where uh, when we have the kinds of conditions that are running in California right now, uh, where you've got these hot, dry winds late in the fire season, uh, where the fire behavior doesn't sit down at night the way uh, you would during ordinary weather without right. the wind. Right. And sometimes those winds, the topography channels them into certain areas. And you're saying, all right, if we've had the part of Santa Rosa that burned in the Tubbs fire burn twice, very hot because of similar wind-driven events channeled by the topography into a certain area, we may need some very special building codes right. for an area like that. 
Well, and, and California is a state that is so dependent in terms of the uh, uh, the water and the moisture it has in, in the soil and in the ground from what you get through the winter uh, up in the mountains with the snow and, and the rain as well. And that, obviously, those amounts have come down in, in recent years as well, well Keith. They, they've come down, and the seasons where the, the rains don't start, uh, say, in November, December, uh, are really quite problematic, and and we saw that so pointedly last year with the Thomas fire burning past the the New Year's. And in the past, you know, we had a defined fire season here, um, right. and the the weather is not, it's not just hotter and drier; it's also um, that the start of what rains we will get, and we will get rains in any Mediterranean climate, uh, the start of the rains has become uh, seemingly uh, more variable. Right. So, so it's, it's, we've already dramatically changed the staffing patterns right, right. for fire service agencies over the, the last five years because of that. We're joined here on the phone by Keith Gillis of the University of California at Berkeley, along with Howard Conruther of the Wharton School. Your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Howard, how, how confident are you that, that there are enough mines that understand how significant a problem is. And, and obviously when you see the fires, that, that should be the, you know, the, 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 the drop-dead point to begin with to want to make change on this. But how confident are you that there will be significant change in this? And again, part of this depends on the, the atmosphere itself, but to, to really start to make some policy change where a lot of this is concerned. Well, uh, I'd like to be a little bit optimistic on that, Dan, in the following sense, that because of the number of wildfires and the magnitude of these wildfires in the last couple of years, uh, people are paying attention. Uh, the challenge is going to be for the state legislature, for the state and the communities to take some steps now while the uh, fire is hot, <laughs> if I could use a horrible pun, yeah. um, and really do things uh, over the course of the next few months because if it turns out that these steps are not taken now, there's a tendency to go back to the status quo and say we're not going to do very much. And so um, the hope is that these things now are going to force all of us to pay attention, which I think is one of the reasons why we're all we're, we're talking about it now. Let's hope that um, the appropriate people can take that next step. Uh, and in that sense, I'd like to be optimistic. But I think from past disasters, we know that if you don't do things early and you don't take advantage of that, there's a tendency not to do anything so let's i I don't want to end on the negative note let's hope that the positive thing is what we where we go but keith it sounds like from what you've said you are positive that that from a policy perspective that that we may be able to to take some steps here in the next few months and years i think we we are taking steps and i think that's partly why the reaction to the president's comments were so intense about our forest management yeah is that we're really working hard on these problems. Um, and some of them uh, you can't solve overnight because some of them are fundamental legal issues of liability. Um, others involve how you're going to finance activities. Uh, and there's some, you know, uh, fire control bonds and things like that, which are interesting experiments that right. we're we're looking into out in California. We've got one going up in Tahoe where, uh, say, a water district puts money on the table to do vegetation management with the idea that they'll actually recoup their investment 
through reduced costs of clearing out sediment and uh, debris right. flowing into their reservoirs as a result of fire activity in a watershed. So there are a lot of things we can try and do. I think um, the issue, though, is maintaining focus on the problem. Uh, right. The fact that we've had now about six years of just terrible fire seasons helps keeps Californians focused. Yeah. But the country as a whole needs to think of natural hazards like forest fires, earthquakes, floods, um, I think in a way which doesn't treat them as random and infrequent events, right? We need yeah. to treat this as part of our normal. Guys, great having you with us today. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Keith. All the best. And right. we will uh, talk to you again down the road. Thank you again. Thank you, My Dad. pleasure. Thank you. Howard Conruther from here at the Wharton School, professor of decision sciences and policy and co-director of the Risk Management and Decision Processes Center. Keith Gillis, who is professor and dean emeritus of the College of Natural Resources at the University of California at Berkeley. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 